Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. It's the worst of the worst kind of crime. She looked like a china doll, just laying there, staring out to space. Leaving the parents in Portsmouth, Virginia, wondering, is their teenage daughter next? We were dealing with a crime that was so brutal and so scary. There was an entire neighborhood that was scared to death. I had never known anyone who had been murdered. And a suspect no one in this military town ever saw coming. He gave me this intuition that I was looking at somebody who he really wasn't. We had a very evil young man in that room. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Situated along the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, Portsmouth, Virginia is a seaport town, home to both the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard. Naval officers and their families reside on its tree-lined streets, all the while being a stone's throw away from the town's waterfront and shipyards. Portsmouth is a small town. It's a mixture of military along with people that have been here all their lives, some that have left and come back. Seems like you know just about everybody in this town. It's the place where Navy Petty Officer First Class Chris Short casts anchor, along with his wife, Angela, and three stepchildren, Elizabeth, Megan, and Corey Landowski. We were stationed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for a year when I got transferred to Portsmouth Naval Hospital. Settling back into life on American soil, their oldest daughter, 16-year-old Megan Landowski, immediately enrolled in dance classes. Guantanamo Bay really didn't have a dance program. So we moved here and we got her into a dance program and she took off. Every parent thinks their daughter is the best dancer in the world. But Megan's dance just, I mean, took your breath away. Between dance classes and school, Angela admits Megan kept her on her toes. 
Megan was my oldest, and raising her as a teenage girl was very interesting. <laughs> Megan was into boys. Megan was into hair, um, clothes were her biggest thing, um, nail polish. I think she had every color of the rainbow and nail polish. <laughs> and she was your typical teenage girl. 16-year-old Megan Landowski is the girl next door, beautiful, friendly, and talented. Everyone who meets her is immediately drawn in by her magnetic personality. But what happens to this girl next door will forever change this once peaceful town. Thursday, April 10th, 2008, starts out like any sunny spring day in Portsmouth, Virginia. Got her up, she got dressed. We talked about her test she had that day. Angela drops off her daughter Megan at Woodrow Wilson High School as she's done countless mornings. I told her I loved her and I said, call me when you get home so I know you're home. She said, okay, I love you, bye. And she got out. Around four that afternoon, Megan's stepfather, Chris Short, arrives home. When I pulled up, I noticed the door was open. And we told Megan several times not to leave the door open while nobody's there. Well, when I was calling for her, there was no answer. And then I looked, then I saw Megan laying on the floor. And she looked like a China doll just laying there, staring out to space. 16-year-old Megan Landowski has been murdered. It threw me into kind of like a dream state. My daughter couldn't be dead. As a father of three, Detective Doug Funkhauser is constantly juggling a challenging career as a homicide investigator and his busy home life. My kids know that uh, phone rings, that daddy's going to go catch a bad guy. And it isn't always easy to find that balance, especially when duty calls. I was on my way home uh, to take my wife to dinner. It was our wedding anniversary. And I received a call uh, that a young lady had been killed. I uh, called my wife, told her I wasn't coming home, that there was a uh, homicide that I had to work. And um, I told her uh, I wasn't going to tell her happy anniversary until after the case was done. And it might be a while before the missus gets that anniversary dinner. At the house on Robert's court, Detective Funkhauser is met with a horrific scene. When I approached the front door, I noticed there was blood on the door handle. And when I walked into the kitchen and I saw a uh, partially nude young lady lying on the floor. She was lying in a uh, large pool of blood. She had multiple stab wounds to her back, neck and throat. You could see where her mouth had been taped with um, clear uh, packaging tape. It's a lot to take in, even for a seasoned detective. This by far is the most brutal and gruesome scene that I've walked in in my career. At first, I took a 
stepped back and uh, caught my breath because it's, it was a child. And uh, I just had to concentrate and uh, uh, do my job. In order to do his job, he'll need to figure out what happened inside these walls. And he can't do it alone. Forensic technician Carl Sequera knows a thing or two about turning up clues at a crime scene. He's been doing it for 25 years. Perfect murder. Haven't found one yet. And he hopes to continue that trend. I knew I had my work cut out for me. We had a large scene to process. Working their way outside to in, the forensic team quickly determines this killer wasn't invited. The suspect came through the first floor window. Once inside, the attack began in an upstairs bedroom. The bed was uh, messed up as if a struggle took place. Under the left front corner of the bed, there was a tape dispenser. It appeared to be the same size tape that was wrapped around Megan's arms and her face. And each new piece of evidence in the bedroom gets more and more disturbing. There was seminal fluid on the duvet and also in her underwear. It appears Megan Landowski was sexually assaulted before she was murdered. We have two crime scenes. We have the one upstairs where uh, a sexual assault took place. And then we have the other crime scene downstairs where she was stabbed to death and where she died. The scene in the kitchen is a gruesome one. There was blood on the floor, blood splatter on the refrigerator, the counter, the stove, the walls. Investigators quickly locate a potential murder weapon. We saw a knife in the sink that was come from the knife block on the counter. It's a disturbing scenario. A teenager sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in her own home. Police need to act fast. There was a uh, person out there that could uh, kill a uh, child. A massive manhunt begins. We canvassed the neighborhood uh, and went door to door. We could not come up with a witness that saw anything that day. The killer was able to slip out in broad daylight onto the streets of Portsmouth unnoticed. We had a whodunit, so to speak. I had no idea. No idea of whether it's an adult, a juvenile, couldn't tell you. Murder isn't something that usually happens on the quiet streets of Portsmouth, Virginia, much less the murder of a teenage girl. So when 16-year-old Megan Landowski is brutally stabbed to death in her own home, it strikes fear in the hearts of its residents. It was devastating for a whole community, and I think a lot of people were scared, and the kids were terrified, some of them, to sleep at night. And for Megan's dance teacher, Kelly Derrick, the victim is not some faceless stranger. Megan was a beloved student. Every time you turned on the TV, that was what was on. It was just surreal to watch that this is not happening. It was a dream. It's a nightmare in every sense of the word for Megan's mother. The whole thing is going through your mind. 
as to why, who, I can hear her fighting for her life. It's heart-wrenching. And what's worse, Angela and Chris Short believe they know who's responsible. After the initial shock of Megan's death wears off, they drop a bombshell on police by naming a suspect. It was the guy who sexually assaulted her, the Navy guy. We told the detectives, it's gotta be him. He's a former friend with a dark history concerning Megan, a man with a motive for murder. Working as a special victims investigator, Robert McDaniel knows firsthand the world can be a dangerous place where bad things can happen to good people and often do. But it still doesn't make the job any easier, especially when a case like this one comes around. When the call came out on the radio, the address didn't register with me as, a, as working on a prior case. And when I saw Chris Short, it all came together at that point. Detective McDaniel first met Megan Landowski when she'd just turned 16, and it wasn't under pleasant circumstances. Megan's stepfather brought her in to report a possible sexual assault. Megan told McDaniel that her stepfather's Navy buddy, Keith Camp, had been making inappropriate advances towards her. Megan was telling me he started out by kissing her, and then it was getting more sexually advanced. Chris Short had no idea Keith Camp had such troubling intentions towards his stepdaughter. Once I found out what um, he did to my daughter, it was worse than taking a knife and cutting my insides out. We wanted him to pay for hurting our angel. Megan's parents pressed charges against the family friend. These charges were filed only five months before, and a trial on the matter was pending. Megan was not afraid to tell me what happened, but she did ask me the question, you know, is he going to come after me now that I'm telling on him? And I asked her why she thought that, and she stated that it's because you see it happen on TV all the time. And at that time, I told her, I said, it doesn't happen in real life very often. Was Detective McDaniel wrong? Did it happen in real life? Megan Landowski is brutally killed at the same time she's accusing a grown man of sexual abuse. It's quite a coincidence. The only reason that we knew of that Megan would be in danger would be because of that investigation. An investigation that would not only ruin Keith Camp's reputation, but could land him in jail. There was an active, ongoing case that was set for a trial in regards to this matter. And without the victim being present, the trial could not go forward. It's a strong motive. Police act fast. They send officers to pick up Keith Camp, while at the same time, execute a search of his home. During the search, we didn't find any bloody clothes. We didn't find anything that would tie him to Megan Landowski's murder. That is until investigators searched Keith Camp's computer. We wanted to see if there was any communication with Megan Landowski. There are no emails to Megan, but detectives note some files were recently erased. Erased, but not gone completely. We found child pornography. It's not a smoking gun, 
but it certainly raises the red flag. People who have child porn sometimes will advance from just the viewing. Next step is the touching and then acting out their fantasies. The sailor is looking more and more like their man. Look really bad for him. Bad in the form of a strong motive and circumstantial evidence, but they'll need more. They confront Keith Camp about the murder, looking to get a confession. In the interview, he was nervous. He wanted to know what was going on. Uh, we explained to him what had taken place. He stated he did uh, not have anything to do with the uh, death of the victim. He claims to have an alibi, but it's not airtight. His alibi was that he was on the base the entire day and that he hadn't left the base. It was possible that he could have left work and came and um, killed the victim and went back to work. Now, police just have to prove it. We checked to see if there was any way that he could have done it. But after the interviews were complete of people that he worked with, the time frame that he was there and the time it would have took to uh, leave his place of employment, come to our city, and then go back, it did not match up. Is it possible he's not the killer? Megan's parents don't think so. It's got to be him. Who else could it be? I mean, this is so coincidental. There's one way to know for sure. DNA. We did not have anything that linked him to the crime scene. We'd have to wait and uh, what the DNA results were. And the results leave everyone flabbergasted. Keith Camp is not a match. I was shocked that he wasn't uh, the one that we were looking for. It's devastating news for Megan's stepfather. His daughter's killer is still at large, and now Megan can't testify against Keith Camp concerning the sexual abuse charges. He wasn't going to be prosecuted for touching her, so I failed my daughter because I told her that he would be punished, and now he wasn't. So if it wasn't Keith Camp, police must consider the other logical suspect in the case, Megan's stepfather. Chris Short's actions are in line with a grieving relative, but there's always a chance that pinning the blame on his friend was an attempt to throw off investigators. He is the individual that had found Megan. Uh, he called 911. He is her father. We wanted to uh, make sure that he was not a suspect. Detectives take a DNA swab. Chris Short is not a match. And all other family members are quickly crossed off the list. And we were able to eliminate uh, Megan's mother, her father, and her brother as suspects. With all obvious suspects ruled out, the question now becomes, why? Why was Megan killed so violently? Did she know her killer? Or was this a random attack? The autopsy showed uh, us that uh, she was stabbed in the face multiple times, the eye, the chest, uh, stabbed both sides of her neck. The attack was very direct and to the point. There's no 
doubt in your mind when you're stabbing towards the neck. You're not trying to hurt somebody, you're trying to kill them. This was a clear case of overkill. Some of the stab wounds in the back were post-mortem. 12 post-mortem wounds, in fact. Post-mortem stab wounds will tell you this person that did this was extremely angry. It's like saying, this is what I did to you. And it's kind of putting a stamp mark on it, saying, and there's nothing you can do. With this amount of rage, it's a good bet that Megan knew her attacker. Find out who was angry towards Megan and find Megan's killer. The parents were asked if they knew of anybody that would want to hurt her. But Megan's parents can't think of a single person. She loved everybody. She wanted everybody to be her friend. <laughs> if someone was angry towards their daughter, he's kept his rage well hidden. And when two weeks pass with no new suspects, Megan's parents fear there won't be justice for their daughter. And I told them, please don't let this case go cold. Please do not let this case go cold. To reassure them, Detective Funkhauser makes a promise, one he's never made before. I told a victim's family that there was no way that this case would go unsolved. There's no way it's going to get cold. Now to make good on that promise, and it won't be easy. We were looking for somebody who was close by that had a way to get away relatively fast or easy and can blend in to the area that Megan lived at. So everybody was, every male that was in the, that area was suspect. Inside the walls of Woodrow Wilson High School in Portsmouth, Virginia, there are the typical cliques you'd find in any high school. Jocks, geeks, honor students, and homecoming queens. It's a complicated social network that two middle-aged detectives get to know all too well. When investigating the murder of 16-year-old Megan Landowski. We knew Megan had a life outside of her family. When students go to school, they have a life that most parents don't have a clue what is going on. Which may explain why Megan's parents can't think of anyone who might be angry towards their daughter. So it's up to police to uncover the secret life of this teenager. We don't know, know what she liked to do, who she may hang out with. Current boyfriend, old boy. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. 
Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, we were looking at the possibility that there was a teenage boy that had an infatuation with her. And if anyone would know about Megan's social life, it would be her friend, Heather Coral. We spent pretty much Monday through Friday every afternoon together. When I hung out with Megan, all we worried about, you know, was school and if we're going to get our good grades and talked about boys. Heather just never thought she'd be talking to police about her friend's murder. They asked me basic questions like, you know, did I remember any names of, you know, boys who Megan talked to? And it was hard because you wish you could go back and remember every little detail of everything she ever said. But you can't remember. Heather isn't able to provide police with information on any potential suspects. So detectives head to Woodrow Wilson High School to speak with Megan's other friends. We started interviewing the kids that she went to school with because we felt that it was somebody that knew Megan. Every male in the student body is a potential suspect. We learned that Megan had boyfriends, or what Megan called boyfriends. Well, we later found out about those boyfriends were There were guys that she had a crush on. And then we'd interview those boys and we'd find out they liked each other for a couple of days. With these boyfriends changing weekly, police have lots of young men to talk to. And it isn't long before some disturbing information surfaces. More than one kid were saying in school that Megan was scared to go home, that something was bothering her, but no one knew what it was. Who was Megan afraid of? Despite several rounds of interviews, no one can pinpoint this mystery person. Is it a rumor or fact? When you talk to a teenager, it's like trying to pick up a book that's written in code. Investigators tried to crack this code by looking to see if any of Megan's actions that day indicated she was afraid. She left a message on her mom's phone uh, saying that things were fine. She didn't call him to ask for help, that she was scared about something. 
it hardly sounds like Megan feared for her life. Ultimately, detectives find the source of what they're now positive is just a rumor. And finally, one of her other friends finally said Megan wasn't scared to go home. Megan just didn't want to be home alone because she liked being with friends. One kid says one thing and it changes to the next kid when uh, he hears it or she hears it, and then that's how the rumor spread. None of the boys in Megan's high school emerge as suspects. But just to be sure, police ask for a DNA sample to rule them out completely. During that process, every parent, every child gave us consent. They were more than willing to help us. With everyone's full cooperation, it's not a surprise when none are a match. But Megan's social network doesn't end inside the walls of her high school. Megan was active through social networking through the internet. And the internet can be a very dangerous place. You don't really know who you're talking to. We thought it was possible maybe she had met the individual online and that they came here to possibly meet. Perhaps Megan was talking to someone posing to be a peer. In a case like this, we're looking for conversations that she had, pictures that she may have posted. We were hoping there was some communication, whether it was an argument or something to get us at some point in the right direction. But nothing stands out. We cross-checked any screen name or social network that was dealing with her name. We didn't find anything that would link us to who killed me. It's another frustrating dead end. For the next month, investigators work around the clock. We really didn't know whether we were looking for a white male, a black male, Asian male. So what if there was a way to narrow down the suspect pool? Turns out, there is. One of the tools we had in this case was a lab that does biogeographic testing. Biogeographical testing can be used to narrow down the race of the killer's DNA. It tells you what percentage of where they're located from anywhere in the world. The DNA found at the crime scene is sent to a specialized lab for a genetic breakdown. The DNA testing showed that we were looking for an African-American male. It's not foolproof, but it's potentially helpful information. At this point, we had been focusing on Caucasian males. We didn't take our focus off of white males. We were focusing on now black males as opposed to just all white males. Six months pass with no breaks in the case. And Megan's family is still trying to make sense of the tragic loss of their daughter. It was coming up on her 17th birthday, and it was very emotional for me because it was her first birthday I had without her, you know, and and we still hadn't found out who did this, and it was still, still fresh to me. And... That's, that's hard for a mother to go through. And for the detectives, too. I couldn't just let it go because the statement that bothered me the most was I told her that she was safe. You can't help but take it personally. But safe from whom? It's anyone's guess at this point. Lucky for investigators, one helpful resident decides to share with police their best guess, too. I got a phone call from a concerned citizen. They gave me the list of names. 
a list of boys that Megan sometimes flirted with. Off the list of names, all of them except for one had already been interviewed. Could this one lone name be the person who killed Megan Landowski? He was somebody new. Over the past six months, residents in Portsmouth, Virginia, have been grappling with the question, who would want to kill the girl next door? The case follows Detective Funkhauser everywhere. There was a lot of pressure to solve this case. Our city needed this to be solved. And that pressure is twofold for Detective McDaniel, who now sees similarities between his once stress-free fishing trips and work. When you're going fishing, if you're, if you're trying to really catch fish, you have to search for the right place to fish. You have to be able to use the right bait. It's like doing the job. And he just might reel in that fish when he gets a call from a concerned citizen. I had a list of names that was given by this person that Megan associated with at the school she went to prior to, to Wilson High School. When I was looking at the names that I was given, only one name was one that hadn't been interviewed. That was Robert Barnes. Up until this point, detectives were only focusing on Megan's current high school. Megan went to two different schools because we had an opportunity to put her into a performing arts program, which was for dance, at Churchland High School. And the following year, she didn't return. It was a lot. It was a lot on her plate. It was while attending this program, Megan Landowski met a 16-year-old violinist named Robert Barnes. When Megan talked to me about Robert, she referred to him as Bobby. She said he was a friend. I do remember Megan saying that she thought he may have liked her as more than that, but she didn't feel that way. He's just another friend in Megan's life. Or is he? Robert Barnes was a very accomplished violinist. He was a very good student, never had any problems in school, had never been in trouble that we could tell. Detective McDaniel heads to Churchland High School to speak with the boy. I asked him what he knew about Megan. He gave me the same information we'd been hearing. She was a nice girl. She was sweet. Nothing really stands out to investigators until... At the very end of the conversation, I ended the same way we did all interviews. Would he mind giving up a DNA sample? And Robert Barnes thought for a minute, and he said, no, I don't want to do that. Robert Barnes politely explains why he's not comfortable with the test. He made it sound like it was because his mother wouldn't agree with it. You don't have to get parental consent for a DNA sample from a juvenile. He was 17 at the time and very capable of consenting one way or another. Police can't ignore the fact he's an African-American male refusing to give a DNA sample, no matter what the explanation. I said, well, that's fine. Ask your mother about it. Gave him my card and said, give me a call. If your mother agrees to you giving up a DNA sample, I'll come and get it from you. And it's not just the fact that he doesn't want to give his DNA that bothers Detective McDaniel. 
There was something about Robert, though, you get an intuition doing this job. Robert gave me this intuition that I was looking at somebody who he really wasn't. The high school junior's name jumps to the top of the suspect list. But then, the boy surprises detectives. The following day, I got a phone call from Robert Barnes, and Robert asked if he could meet with me. McDaniel meets with Robert Barnes once again. I asked him, I said, did you ask your mother about the DNA sample? He stated, no, um, but you can have my bubble gum. And he was chewing gum at the time. He took the gum out of his mouth and placed it in a latex glove for me to preserve and take back to the lab. Despite Robert's change of heart, investigators still feel he's hiding something. But is it murder? I still had a feeling that it was something about Robert Barnes. I talked to Detective Funkhauser about him, and I told him, I have a feeling we have our suspect, but I don't have any, any way to prove that he's our suspect. And Detective McDaniel's hunch may be right. I got a phone call from the lab asking me how I got the sample. I explained to them that he was chewing gum and put the gum in the wrapper. They asked me, are you sure that you watched him the whole time? McDaniel asks why. And they said, because the gum came back to a female. So unless he's hiding another type of secret, the DNA from the gum doesn't belong to Robert Barnes. Have investigators just been duped by a teenager? I didn't know what to think. Either the kid is pulling our chain and it's uh, not very funny, or you know we may be onto something now, but uh, we just didn't know. There's a funny thing about teenagers. They're not quite adults, and they're not quite kids either. Over the last six months of dealing with this demographic, Portsmouth detectives have learned to expect the unexpected. So it's not a stretch to think 17-year-old Robert Barnes' DNA switch might just be a prank and have nothing to do with Megan Landowski's murder. The first thing that popped into my head was, he's playing games with the police. Everybody that we had talked to in the school dealing with Robert Barnes said he likes to play jokes. But the Portsmouth police aren't laughing. What he did is he said he had the wrapper in his pocket to put the gum in. He pulled his hands out of his pocket, brought them up to his mouth, spit the gum into the wrapper, closed it up, and then he held his hand out. As I turned my hand to get a glove to put the DNA sample in, he had another piece of gum in his hand, and he dropped it in. They bring Robert Barnes to the station with a plan. McDaniel will confront him about the DNA results, and Funkhauser will take notes. I laid it out on the line that the DNA sample he gave was a girl's and not his. And at this point, we still didn't know for sure we had it, our suspect. But that is about to change. He made the statement, he said, this happened on a Thursday. Nobody we had interviewed up to this point knew the exact day of the week. It's like my stomach fell through because I knew I had the person that killed Megan Ladowski looking at me, and he was a teenage boy. And what this teenage boy is about to say is incredible, almost 
downright ridiculous. He tells me that she had asked him to come by the house. Once inside the house, Robert Barnes's story takes a twisted turn. He claims Megan wasn't alone. She was being held at gunpoint by a masked man. Like when I first saw her, I thought, you know, I'm just, nothing's wrong, you know? But then when I saw the dude, I'm like, crap. According to Barnes, this masked man then turned the gun on him. He told me to tie her up, and she was just saying, you know, don't do it, don't do it. He gave the story of how he was forced to commit a sexual act on her at gunpoint. He was forced to put the tape on her and bind her up. He was forced to rough her up a little bit. Barnes tells investigators he had no choice or the gunman would kill him. And then I asked what happened. After all that, he said, we went downstairs. When they got in the kitchen, he said the gunman came up beside him, grabbed a knife, and then st- and st- started stabbing her. The guy's, like, over in this direction. She, like, you know, it's just, like, she, like, staggered and, like, went like this. And then he stated that after the gunman stabbed Megan, that he grabbed his hand and cut his finger. And that's how the DNA sample got left in the house. He had me, like, do, like, four drops. He just kept going like this. It's quite a story. It's probably the craziest statement I ever heard. Of course, the masked man is not there. He was putting the actions of what he did off on this imaginary second person. He was trying to make himself out to be a victim. And all the while, trying to explain away any evidence that could link him to the crime. Your DNA was left behind. But police know the evidence clearly shows only one person was in that house. He wanted to answer all the questions I had. And he was never realizing in his mind that we knew we had the person that killed him. Here's the thing, Robert. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't he just kill you? He had too many details. He knew exactly what happened. We had a, a very evil young man in that room. And Megan Landowski never saw this evil side of Robert Barnes until it was too late. 17-year-old Robert Barnes is arrested for the murder of Megan Landowski. After the arrest, Detective Funkhauser sends his wife a two-word message. I sent a text to my wife and I told her happy anniversary and she knew that that's all the case. When Megan's parents learn of the arrest, they're stunned. Detective Funkhauser called me and he told me, he says, Angie, I want you to sit down. And my heart dropped. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, you have somebody? And I knew immediately who it was, immediately. Angela and Chris Short had no idea the quiet young man who used to ride the bus with their daughter was capable of such violence. Robert Barnes was a very polite kid. He was very polite. I mean, when he would come up, he would, good morning, Miss Short, you know, and he was very respectful. And very cold-blooded. I think the community was shocked that that it was a child. We all expected it to be an adult, it, this, it looked like just such a vicious crime that 
it had to it had to be an adult. There's no way somebody's son could do this. But he did. And this is what investigators believe happened that April afternoon. Robert Barnes came in through the window, approached Megan, which I'm sure surprised her, took her upstairs. He then bound her, attempted to sexually assault her. She fought back. She got away, ran down the steps. Robert Barnes was in pursuit of her. He grabbed her, reached over and got a knife and began to stab her and then after she had passed, he stabbed her several more times. Leaves the residence and continued his life. After his arrest, Robert Barnes changes his tune. And in September 2009, he pleads guilty to first-degree murder and aggravated sexual battery. He is sentenced to 42 years in prison. I feel closure now that I know where he is and I know that he's not gonna do this to anyone else. But there's still one burning question. He's never told us why he killed Megan Lewandowski. But detectives have a theory. I personally think that Robert had feelings for Megan she rejected him, and that sent him over the edge. And he couldn't stop. And that just showed a complete dark side of Robert Barnes. And actually, it's his true side. To me, the why doesn't matter, because that's not going to bring back my daughter. He tried to take advantage of her and she fought him off. My daughter lost her life protecting herself. And in a weird way, in a weird way, that is comforting. Teenagers in Portsmouth once again talk about grades, friends, and who likes who. But things aren't quite as they once were. I still get scared sometimes to be home alone. I had never known anyone who had been murdered. I always saw it on the news. It just seemed like something that would never happen to you. But it can. And the murder of Megan Landowski is a constant reminder to Portsmouth students that you never really know who your friends really are. Nickelodeon was kid everything, but that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set, an ID true crime event, Sunday, March 17th at 9, on ID and stream on Max.